Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from 2 million ARR to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Stefan Moraes, Managing General Partner at Indico Capital Partners. Stefan, uh, thanks for being here. It's, it's amazing to host you on the show. Uh, my pleasure. Always a pleasure to try to contribute a little bit. <laughs> I'm sure that the Scale-Up community will enjoy a lot this episode of, of the podcast. And yeah, get, get us to, get, let us know a little bit more about how did you end at Indico Capital Partners and how did you start in, in the venture capital industry? Well, I mean, I guess that the route to, to become a VC is quite complex and, and it's not standard. Um, the first time I had contact with this world was when I was in London in in the, in the end of the 90s and you know the the, the ecosystem uh, at the time was booming uh, you know the, the dawn of the internet age and um and before i went to do my mba i i had a chance to set up a little company with some other colleagues uh, from arthur anderson while we were working at arthur anderson and this was actually funded by 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 the corporate that, that we worked for um, and then, and then when I when I got into into Harvard to do my MBA, I, I tried to specialize as much as I could in in private equity and VC. I kind of understood that this would be a profession that I'd like mm-hmm. to 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 sort of get into at some stage. But um, the truth is, I had done consulting. I then did banking. I then I then became a CEO. But I never lost sight of the fact that uh, that I really what I really wanted to to do was to become a professional investor. So. Uh, when the time came, more than a decade later, I, I joined, um, you know, the board of of uh, uh, Kaisha Capital, which was uh, the VC you know, and private equity shop inside uh, the largest bank in in Portugal. And at the time, uh, we were a bit, or I was a little bit lucky because I think the Portuguese ecosystem was uh, starting to 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 arrive to an interesting stage. There were a few companies that were really uh, starting to um, make make their marks on the international markets, both in Silicon Valley and also in in London and raising capital. And there weren't that many uh, VC firms, and and uh, you know standard plain vanilla term sheets were uh, almost mm-hmm. inexistent in the market. So it wasn't actually too complicated mm-hmm. to try to do something. Just normal and uh, and and very rapidly. I think the founders in the country understood that they had a partner that could uh, sort of help them and help them secure capital, help them do other rounds, help them grow their companies. So we ended up putting together a very very interesting portfolio of, of Portuguese based companies, mm-hmm. which did uh, very well. You know, companies like and Apple and Farfetch. And Codacy and, and a few others. Um, basically, almost all the success stories coming out of Portugal, uh, with the exception of, of, of Cristina's Fonseca Talk Desk, which now joined me in, in the fund. And so, and that's and that's how things started. I mean, I had this long-standing passion with the industry, um, but again, it's not an industry where it's obvious how on how to get in. Right? You just don't don't really do a master's in VC kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and and so there's many routes, but I think it's a it's a profession that um, it's it's good to have experience and it's good to have been on many sides of the table. And and given that I was uh, you know a, a banker, a consultant, and a CEO and, and a founder, 
uh, I think that you know gave me the perspective of, of how 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 to address the issues that founders face and 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 the growing pains of companies. Very very interesting. And and what about Indico Capital Partners? So what is your investment thesis? What is your mission? Your vision? Uh, what are you trying to build now in this second stage after uh, Casha Capital? Well, I mean, I guess we started with with nothing too different from what we used to do at Caixa. I mean, it's a, the Portuguese ecosystem has obviously become a little bit more mature. Uh, there's also more foreign investors looking at uh, at deal flow here. But in essence, it's an early stage ecosystem where uh, there's a lot of uh, good engineering ta talent for a reasonable cost, which means that capital you can be quite capital efficient at at the beginning at least. Um, not so strong, uh, probably in human resources in terms of sales and marketing. So that's the kind of talent you have to mm -hmm. acquire uh, internationally. Um, but there's a, a big advantage in the Portuguese ecosystem, which is that there is no local market. Uh, that means that the Portuguese startups, they really need mm -hmm. to go global from day one. And that, that changes the perspective uh, entirely of on the way you develop product, the way you, you develop customers and the way you price and, and 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 so on and so what we've what we try to do at indico really is to find um, you know companies that are potentially unique globally in the way that they're solving a certain problem or at least a magnitude number of times better than than anybody else out there certainly in europe potentially globally with a team that uh, has the ambition to become uh, a category winner on at the global scale, and mm -hmm. and and to do that, we we basically deploy you know pre-seed to Series A capital, and mm -hmm. and knowledge, and and try to help the companies do that transition from being you know just an early stage uh, product, uh, post product in general, uh, but with very very little revenue kind of company into into you know if you're talking about a SaaS company, a company that would have. Uh, 100k plus MRR, and that is mm -hmm. ready to receive, uh, you know, new types of investors and 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 bigger funds than ours from from all over the world. Um, mm -hmm. We are quite flexible in terms of the stage that we get in. So we we go mm -hmm. in as little as 150,000 euros and and as high as five million, and we have occasionally mm -hmm. done uh, Series uh, A straight or even a Series C that we did straight at Unbabel because it was one of my former companies and you know the opportunity came up to get in again with our with our own own fund and so we took that but that's a little bit outside of the, of the playbook uh it also helps mm -hmm. i think um gives a better profile to the fund in a sense that it's a, a slightly later stage opportunity that that has less risk uh, supposedly and mm -hmm. um and so we're we're quite flexible but i'd say that our sweet spot is to get in at, at seed rounds, you know, anything from half a million to, to a million and a half, and then help build a team, help build the, the, the recurring revenue side of the equation and, and positioning the company into, into securing a, a strong a Series A co-lead with us um, so that the company can then fly into, into further markets and, and, and do well and keep on bringing talent. Right. We we always uh, love to to discuss on on these episodes uh, with with investors on the perspective of helping their portfolios scaling up. 
uh, that in the past, usually entrepreneurs needed to beg for money. And uh, nowadays, there is much more capital uh, available and it's much more the kind of the opposite. The very good teams, the very good entrepreneurs, uh, the very good businesses, investors want to, um, to get in. So do you have any story of, of uh, an investment where you needed really to fight, to, to fight in, the, in the good sense, of course, to, to get in? I mean, currently in the, in the current portfolio, we haven't had that experience yet. I mean, we started this fund only about a year ago, did nine mm -hmm. investments, deployed about 17 million out of the 51 or so that we have. Uh, so this was quite a busy year and, and, and a year in a sense a bit uh, unusual because in the previous two to three years, maybe there wasn't so much capital available in, in the market, given that we had departed mm -hmm. from, from Kaish and, and, and the other teams that were VCs as well, did not have funds operating either. So it was, it was a, a year where we had a lot of good, potentially good opportunities that we, that we suddenly invested um, in, a, in a faster pace than, than what would be normal. Uh, having said that, we only invested in nine out of the 1,200 that we saw in two years. So it's, it's mm -hmm. quite a low ratio, but still kind of, kind of uh, easy to, to deploy. Um, I don't think that in the future it will be this way. It'll keep on being this way. Uh, but if I had any other uh, any issues with, with coming into deals, I think this happened more in the past, particularly when when we were at Kaisha and when there were uh, some specific restrictions given the corporate fund nature of it, and there when you when you have when you have less flexibility to to decide on how you're going to deploy the size, the the type of security, the specific terms, sometimes it gets hard to sort of uh, combine that into a into a winning proposition. But I'd say that in general, I, I can't remember, uh, you know, a specific time uh, where we had a big difficulty because, in essence, being an early stage market, um, the foreign investors, which could be potentially the, 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 the largest competitors, effectively, they use us more as suppliers of deal flow rather than specifically competitors to us because they, they will tend to do bigger tickets and we will tend to get in before when the company is younger. Uh, mm -hmm. So we don't feel the same uh, rush. I think that in, in many of the, of the more mature markets where there is a lot, a lot of capital, I think we, we probably went a little bit overboard where there is an imbalance between capital and opportunities. And you see mm -hmm. you know, what you call typically bubble situations where people are paying uh, sometimes huge valuations for essentially PowerPoints. Uh, mm -hmm. We haven't done that. We will try not to do it. I don't think this is uh, good for the industry or, and certainly not for the investors in the industry. And we must not forget that VC is a small industry globally, uh, even if sometimes for the people inside the industry, mm -hmm. it, it looks like the whole world is VC-driven in startups, but this is not the case at all. <laughs> this is a very small asset class. And when you go through a period of low interest rates for a long time, and there's more capital that that moves into into this little asset class called venture capital mm -hmm. um, and and that creates sometimes some tensions and some imbalances between uh, the power of investors and the power of entrepreneurs having said that i would agree that you know most of the power now is in the hands of entrepreneurs because there's capital available and the good entrepreneurs the good teams are you know they can they can pick and choose 
the the, the funds and the, and the investors that will help them most. Lastly, in the last uh, few months, mm -hmm. we have seen uh, a slight reverse to that trend, and we're seeing companies needing to become more efficient with better performance and probably larger rounds chasing a fewer number of companies as opposed to more rounds generally and 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 more capital for everyone so uh, yes it's it's you know the power is in the hands of the entrepreneurs but only the very good ones in the companies that are uh sort of hot right. for a reason or not right and it's usually on the show we always cover uh, three main ingredients that we consider critical to to scale up which which is which are the team number one number two much more related with strategy and also cash and funding rounds milestones, uh, which is focus and number three, uh, execution. And, and and the listeners might be asking, so if, if, if you tend to invest with the Indico Capital Partners from pre-seed to, um, to Series A, why we invited Stefan Rest to be on, on this show? And it's it's the same answer that I did with Luis Martin Cavieres uh, that has been also on, on the show before. It's because I really believe that, first of all, uh, Stefan has been uh, helping those those companies scale and I've, I've seen a lot of them scale um, very, very well. We are talking about companies as he was sharing, uh, and Babel, uh, Farfetch, uh, you, you, you can name it even more, uh, Stefan. And, sure. and, and something that we were also uh, having a lot of fun with Luis Martin Cavieres is that uh, if we are if we, if we don't have a good uh, early growth stage and a good seed stage, uh, usually the scaling up stage would be even more uh, difficult. So, yeah. starting with the number one, um, how difficult is this transition from a founding team to the first uh, leadership team? From your experience, having a team just of helpers around the CEO and the founders to to really start building the first uh, version of the leadership team. I think maybe a couple of comments on that. Um, number one, regarding your your analogy between you know the, the need to have a good early stage to have a, a subsequent robust scaling up process. I always like to sort of compare what we do with you know with a, with a training a football training academy or a football school, right? <laughs> if you don't really have you know the 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 Barcelona football school or the Benfica or Sporting you know uh, football school, <laughs> that the the Ronaldos and the Messi are really. St <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a Benfica fan. Stefan right? is from Benfica, yeah, right? But, <laughs> but but I must say that Ronaldo came from Sporting, so you know they have a pretty good academy <laughs> as well. And uh, and Messi, I think he he grew in the academy of Barcelona, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Although he's obviously from Argentina, but uh, the truth is, I think that the, there's. A number of things you need to do when you're when you're an early stage VC, which are not too dissimilar from train from you know finding Ronaldo and Messi when they were six or seven or eight years old. You need to find these sort of talents, you know, the team. You need to find these amazing entrepreneurs that have the drive, the passion, the ambition, and also the technique. You know, they, they need to know what they're talking about. They need to have, put in the hard work. All the same as a, a top football player. But the mm -hmm. truth is, you don't if they don't go through a good training program, they will not reach the Champions League. You know, there might be mistakes, there might be accidents, you know, they might break a leg when they're 13 or 14 <laughs> and never make it to the pros. But right. if you don't have the right academy, which means if you don't have 
the right early stage investors, the likelihood that you're going to end up in a top uh, fund when you're a grown-up startup, right? Which means the likelihood that you're going to end up in uh, playing for Manchester United or Barcelona or whatever, one of these top, top clubs mm-hmm. is very low. Uh, again, the analogy with Ronaldo. Ronaldo would not be the player he is if it wasn't for his move from a little club in Madeira when he was a kid into the academy of sporting, right? And it was sporting that gave him the projection to become then a Manchester United player and then subsequently Real Madrid and so on. So you do need the academy. You do need the early stage local investors because that's also something else that confuses founders sometimes. They sometimes think that, you know, they can go from like a PowerPoint into a major sort of London-based um, fund that that basically invests mm-hmm. in Series A and above. It might happen, but it's highly unlikely, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because the Manchester United scout is not going to go to Madeira every weekend to check the, the six-year-olds, right? <laughs> so there's a chain, there's a chain, you know, there's like a system, there's a process, and you have to go from your little local uh, club or playing on the street to going into a, a national champion kind of club which is one of the top early stage uh, VC funds that exist across Europe in each country. And then there's a number of, of top VC funds across Europe, which will, uh, which are the big league, right? Essentially, they're pan-European, they're, they're, they're huge, they have a, a, a huge network and so on. But all these players are needed to create these, these superstars in terms of, of unicorns, which could be our Ronaldo's and Messi's. And so I think that's, that's the first thing that it's important to sort of uh, clarify when you're talking about team and this training process is in this transition that you mentioned, which is going from founding to, to leadership and, and going from a pre-seed into suddenly you're hiring lots of people and your, your revenues are increasing, but also your complexity is increasing mm-hmm. requires that founders are, have, you know, good listening ability. They need to be able to adapt they need to be able to tap into the resources of the VC, in particularly the partners, uh, which are normally more experienced in, in many areas of, of sort of growing up the company. And so it is important to, to have that cooperation, that, that ongoing um, uh, learning from side to side, where we can, as investors, share our knowledge and with past experiences, and that entrepreneurs adapt to their changing role of you know being coding from being to becoming managers and to becoming you know leaders of a good organization and and that is only mm-hmm. done that can only be done if there's a, a, a very a close cooperation and communication between uh, founders in, and investors because let's not forget they're all shareholders right in the end translating mm-hmm. into sort of like company talk these are shareholders in the company and they're all owners, right? The investors and the founders mm-hmm. are not different in that sense. They're shareholders and all shareholders deserve the same respect and all shareholders in this case can add value, uh, at least theoretically and hopefully. Right, very, very good point. And uh, we always talk a lot about uh, on the show about the importance of even of, of the CEO. We, on the 100 plus episodes so far, with the majority of them were with with CEOs uh, and 
they admit a lot on the show that they need to become a different a different person for the the multiple companies that they will be uh, leading if they are able to get to to the major milestone that we all expect, which would be the IPO or the acquisition. Um, so how do we help them? And sometimes they are even self-aware of that, but they can be really their own bottleneck and their most important enemy to shift of personality uh, during this way. And and we we might, must say that those cycles are are very aggressive. So every 12 to 18 months, if we are successfully raising a round or doubling or tripling the business, uh, the CEO that uh, that needs to be hired for the next round uh, has very different skills than the previous one. And we are trying that the founder keeps at the helm of the company. So how do we help them and what is your experience with, with that? Yes, I mean, I think that you've touched the point. It's not really about changing personality because that's kind of hard when you're a grown up, but it's about having extra skills, right? And it's also about surrounding yourself with the right types of people. Um, we try, one of the things that we do quite a lot is help companies acquire talent in the sense of hiring really good people, complementary people, people that quite often are even better than the CEOs or the founders in their respective fields. Mm -hmm. uh, attracting senior, experienced people is absolutely key once you can afford it. The difference, uh, you know, the proven difference between companies that really go big and, and have huge acquisitions or are acquired for huge sums or do the IPO and the other ones that keep on growing, but maybe not so much or even struggle. It's it's all about the people they hire. Right. Uh, because mm -hmm. in the end, the, the founders, they need to adapt. They need to reskill. They need to know how what are their difficulties and they can either build build up their skills themselves and or they can hire uh, more people and people which are which become more senior. There is an issue sometimes that happens, which is some of the founders they are they really are very focused in one area, particularly a, a, a technical founder, and mm -hmm. they need to adapt to the fact that there will be other senior, potentially more senior people joining the company, which will be senior, more senior than them, because they are not they don't want to manage. They want to to have you know they mm -hmm. they want to be great at what they're already great, which is on the technical side or whatever it is that they're great at. And so that requires a lot of self-knowledge and self-awareness. Um, and, and that's not easy. I mean, some people have more self-awareness mm -hmm. than others. Um, and you have to be, essentially, I think you need to have uh, emotional intelligence. You need to be a good listener uh, to understand what are the drivers, not only of the business, but also of the investors and, and of the and of your of your employees because culture can change a lot also when 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 companies uh, grow very fast and you have to make sure that the, the the culture that is evolving is the right culture for your business that represents the values that you want to uphold and that represents uh, you know the growth tra trajectory that you want to impose on your company so it's not an it's not an easy task i think not not everybody is ready for that um, I think age also helps a little bit. I think that you know when when you look at the the successful founders in in the valley, you see that the average age is probably higher than the ones in Europe. That's obviously you know a, mm -hmm. a factor that we have to take into account because Europe is a younger ecosystem. It also has its advantages. But I would mm -hmm. say that people have to mature quite quickly and have to adapt. Uh, take some things very seriously and take others not so seriously in a sense that, you know, you have to prioritize 
and know what's really worth fighting for and what are things that you have to, you know, just let burn and that's it. Absolutely. And what, what are the positions or that you consider more difficult to hire as a part of the first uh, version of the leadership team? Um, I'd say we, when, we, when we reach a stage where the company has done a successful uh, sort of seed round and is evolving into becoming a Series A, that's when the big transition occurs. Uh, typically at that stage, the company has a product, is working fast towards product market fit. And, and that means that it it's, needs to start having some serious talent around sales and marketing, mm -hmm. uh, which is sometimes not natural for the founders. And the founders tend to be more technical uh, globally. Uh, when you get these sort of people inside, uh, potentially coming from other startups or other or, or corporates, sometimes the, the, the fit is not the right fit. So we, we try to advise founders to really focus on, on cultural fit, personal fit, because these will be very, very senior people that uh, the founders will work with very intensely. They did not come from the from day one, so they do not necessarily share the same uh, jokes and sort of conduct <laughs> and you know process. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, theoretically, they will come with with vast knowledge on how to get things done in 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 a faster and more efficient way, right? And how to scale. And so that transition, those roles, particularly in sales and marketing, some, sometimes they're the most challenging particularly when you're talking about markets which are more peripheral, uh, say like Portugal and Spain, where you don't have the same amount mm -hmm. of trained talent as you'd have obviously in Silicon Valley or, or in London. And, and so mm -hmm. to attract those, that kind of talent, to integrate them culturally, to make sure that they have uh, con the right conditions to be successful and that they're allowed to contribute, all, all those clashes need to be managed and, and need to be taken care of. Got it. And moving to the to the second uh, point that we always discuss, which is much more related with focus, um, and and this one I've heard from you several times, and I've learned a lot the way you are so structured about what needs to be proven in each stage uh, of investment. And uh, I, I always like when I when I see someone talking about very few points because it seems that they know something about what they are talking about. So it's very it's very easy to um, to complicate. And sometimes when we are scaling, it is very counterintuitive. We we tend to open up the avenues of growth and try to go to too many geos, serve small business, mid market, enterprise at the same time, uh, serve all sec all sectors or all verticals at the same time. So. Uh, what kind of advice or what kind of mistakes and, and what do you try to, to, to avoid in your portfolio in terms of assuring that they get more focused instead of being distracted with so many battles? I mean, clearly, you know, the younger the company, the more they should focus, at least to, to the point that they need to find who are the typical early adopters and what is mm -hmm. the segment that they're going to have their first, you know, big win in terms of customers. Um, because what we see quite often is that uh, at, right at the beginning, you, you have to be a little bit broad because you, you might not know who are the customers. But once you zero in on, on who are your, your champions, then you, you, you have to double down on that. Only later, you can then start to address other segments or increase your product breadth or you know, the geographical sort of spread. 
Uh, and this is basically mm -hmm. just a function of, of, of resources, right? If you don't have the resources to to do everything, you just you just can't do it, right? So it's I think that there's also a natural correction in that process. Uh, but obviously VCs tend to be um, uh, if they're more experienced than the founders, which is also not always the case. But if, if that's mm -hmm. the case, uh, they need to be sort of uh, on the lookout uh, when when you're working with the entrepreneurs to try to help set strategy and to set priorities and to set uh, OKRs and to set, you know, who, who does what when. Um, right. it, is, it is often, um, I, I'd say that this is actually like, you know, when you're trying a new sport, um, you probably gonna hurt yourself when you have no idea what you're doing <laughs> or when you're really good at it, right? Um, that's when you fall when you're skiing, right? You're starting or you're really a pro and then you, you know, you just, you know, you hit right. like a rock. And, and the same thing might happen with startups, which is at the beginning, you have probably no idea what you're doing. So you might hit, you know, a few bumps in the road and you might sort of hit rocks as well. Uh, and then there's a phase where basically you are focused and you know what you're doing, you're getting better and so on. And then you get a little bit overconfident uh, quite often. And, and signs of overconfidence uh, manifest themselves quite often in overhiring people, you know, because mm -hmm. you've raised a big round, you allow yourself to, to, to have lots of people that, quite frankly, have no time to integrate them and they have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and, but you're kind of detached because you're the founder and you have all right. these people below you and you don't know exactly and have these middle managers that are, should know what they're doing, but they don't know either. So it's, you know, overhiring <laughs> is a sign. The other sign is, you know, uh, feature proliferation inside your product and, and trying to have many products or many, way too many features um, in the product before before they're actually needed. That will just increase your complexity and actually might bring down the whole thing. And the third is, is geographical uh, dispersion, right? And, and while it's obviously... Mm -hmm. Uh, normal to go into different geographies, particularly if you're in Europe, right? You, you're, you, these are all small countries, so you have to conquer many to make to make yourself a big company. But you, what you probably should not do is have lots of product launch and lots of country launch and lots of people coming in at the same time, because it's just also not human. You know, it's not it's not humanly possible to manage that sort of chaos. And I think that a lot of times, because you have raised subsequent rounds at higher valuations you might even have a feeling that your stake is worth you know x amount of million and so you probably believe that you're uh, you know doing very well um and you kind of lose focus that actually in you know, all startups until they become really really big are actually very small companies at the global scale mm -hmm. and you see that as well when when companies do ipos and they and they tend to sort of they had a very successful VC career. Let's put it this way: they've raised with great investors, mm -hmm. you know, you know, on very founder-friendly terms and so on. And suddenly you you reach you know the the, the capital markets, the sort of the big boys club, uh, the financial analysts, mm -hmm. and they sort of shred you to pieces, right? Because you're just mm -hmm. another company, you know, within the you know the the New York Stock Exchange that has thousands of amazing companies that nobody has ever heard of, and they they're much bigger than you and so on so all these transitions you know even even the ipo is kind of just the beginning right so we can never lose focus of how small we are we particularly you know on the early stage side which is dealing with the little kids let's put it this way you know we're trying to find the little ronaldos and and we have to be humble about it and but the companies also need to be humble about it and they need to understand that this is a, a long-term game 
a very, very difficult game. In the end, there's very few masses in the world. Very good um, analogy. Love it. And uh, usually this temptation also comes from the huge pressure on the milestones that uh, companies uh, need to achieve on this industry. We, we tend to, um, to talk about triple to double free uh, rule in, in the show. And usually when, when the founders needs or, or the CEO needs to find out a plan with the leadership team to double or triple the business every single year, uh, there is this pressure of um, the fear of the missing out any avenue of growth uh, that tends them to try to invest everywhere. So if they fail in one of the avenues, at least uh, they might uh, have a, a success in one of them. And when they fell in everyone, uh, cash was all allocated and there is no milestones for going to the next round, which is kind of a, a cash strategy uh, problem. Uh, so uh, how, what do you think first about the ambition of doubling, tripling uh, every year? Do you think this is something that it's, needs to be done uh, or it depends? <coughs> and second, how to, how to solve this issue when we spend too fast, we allocate too, too much capital and we don't get to the milestones and it puts ourselves in a very difficult situation to, to survive and, and, and move, for, move forward. I'd say that in general, you know, the, 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 the VCs are becoming more data-driven as anything else, uh, any other industry in the world. This is the general trend um, that, you know, has to do with the availability of data. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so what we see is that VCs, depending on the type of business, are more and more, you know, focusing on numbers as opposed to only intuition. Uh, so when you when when we talk about milestones, we're talking about um, once the company grows, the investors they they act more like investment bankers in a sense that you have comparables, you have other companies in the in the similar markets which have achieved certain trajectories, and therefore it's unavoidable that people uh, find that you know they can only invest or they can only keep on supporting companies which are following a specific path and that is that is why these sort of rules come up uh, i mean this specific rule is is just a general rule but then you would find that behind the double triple there's lots of other contribution margins cohorts and so on and so on lots of other small uh, mm -hmm. metrics which which show uh, supposedly show the health uh, the healthy trajectory or not of of the business I don't think that trend is going to go away. I think that you, you, what you're seeing is that increasingly, again, to the point that there's less companies raising more capital and there's less uh, winners overall, but the winners win big. Uh, there's a, there's inequality for sure also in the startup world and in the business <laughs> world. It's, a, it's kind of a winner takes all kind of world. And so to prove that, you have to, you have to follow these metrics. Um, it doesn't mean that there's no way out or that you know the company will stop existing if they don't hit the numbers but it just it might be that you just have to sort of exit a bit a little bit sooner or or merge it with something else and and get your money back and 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 that's why pref shares exist and so on and so on to protect investors against those kind of scenarios but i you know unfortunately we're you know the vc world and, and the startup world is not for every single company we're really talking about 
the very, very few companies that will do well in a sense that they'll become big companies globally. And even those, as we've seen, they reached the, you know, the IPO and they still get knocked down by the public markets now and again. And this, again, depends on the macro situation of, of, the, of, of the world, essentially. You know, it depends on interest rates. It depends on whether there's liquidity in the market or not. And, and so the, 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 the VCs, they basically are a translation of what the investors in the VC want, right? We are essentially managing money on behalf of you know, institutional and private investors. They could be pension funds. And pension funds could be, you know, people like you and me that put their money into a pension mm-hmm. fund. And so that's how capitalism works. And we just re- re- respect incentives and we reply to incentives. And, you know, if the incentive is, is for the asset class to perform, otherwise people will put money into buying more real estate or buying a Ferrari. You know, we have to come up with with the returns to convince them that they should keep on investing in, in, in startups and innovation or else they'll, they'll just buy stocks and bonds, uh, German bonds or, or, or whatever it is. Got it. And um, we we move to the last topic of of the show, which is uh, execution. Nowadays in the in the tech industry, everyone is talking about one once, weeklies, monthlies, quarterlies, OKRs, um, the the offsite uh, culture, of course. Um, what what are some of the habits of the world class teams that you have been seeing? So, uh, there's any habits that you or any pattern that you see in companies who execute well? I mean, there's one habit which is definitely uh, if you take out of the equation capacity, right? Let's let's mm-hmm. assume that you know everybody is able in the same way, or the people that execute are you know smart and they know what they're doing. I think what really differentiates people is the level of uh, ambition, number one, and -hmm. attention to detail, number two. Uh, What we see, the difference between, you know, the very high performing teams and the ones that do kind of well or not so much, it's that they are relentless about the the, the sort of level of ambition. They really aim Mm -hmm. for the stars in in a realistic way. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, these people are crazy and they're just saying things that make no sense, right? I'm, right? I'm assuming that people are intelligent and they know what they're doing. They really aim for the stars, but then they control uh, every single detail quite uh, deeply, right? So they work hard, which means that they work very hard and they're very organized, which is something which is also very important if you want to do something proper. Uh, you have to be organized and you have to work very hard like in any, any other industry or any other school or university that you go into. You know, nowadays it's a very competitive world. So if you, don't, if you don't take care of details, if you don't aim really, really high, the likelihood of, of, of doing well is very low in today's hyper-competitive world. And I'm not saying this is good or bad. It is just the way it is. And, um, and I think that we have, as investors need to you know, help the entrepreneurs and the founding teams uh, train them and give them the tools and, 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 and support them in a way that they can achieve their best, um, but obviously, you know, the companies are run by the founders, are run by the executives and the leaders that are there day to day, and and they really need to shoot for the stars and 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 be paranoid about details. Otherwise, it's it's kind of hard to make it big. Yeah, and I would like just to add something that I shared recently on my own LinkedIn, which is all about communication. And uh, you also explained this very well, Stefan, how uh, the VC business industry works. So it's, 
unfortunately, it's very, very common to see that leadership teams don't understand uh, how a VC business works. Middle management don't have a clue and usually the bottom uh, don't have a clue at all, which is very dangerous for uh, 100 plus company uh, who the majority of the company doesn't know what the game is. Uh, so uh, I think that we should all invest more in and in, in have more staff and talking in our companies uh, about uh, how a VC business uh, works and we can dedicate a further episode uh, about this because I, I really believe this is a very important investment that I'm more aware of. So we come to the last question and our favorite question of, of the show, uh, which is if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, and let's go a little bit behind uh, at the beginning of uh, your career at Kasha Capital. What advice would you offer to Stefan, to your younger self? You know, I think that people now are very lucky that there's a lot of information. And I think there's more, um, there's more choices in life because suddenly you just know that these things existed. I, I mean, I, when, I, when I graduated from, as an engineer, I mean, I didn't even know veg capital existed, right? Um, so there's a lot of stuff that I think, you know, I, there's a lot of people that reach out um, to me, uh, young people that want to have some advice and so on. I end up meeting most, most, most people uh, <laughs> sooner or later. Um, because I think that I, I feel that I should have probably reached out uh, more to older people, to more experienced people, to sort of uh, ask them, you know, what can someone like me do, right? This, here's who I am, here's what I like, here's what I'm good at and not so good at. Share with me what you think, right? And um, I think that's very smart when people do that because we don't know what we don't know at, uh, at any age and, and, and even less when you're a teenager or, or a young graduate. And I think that, you know, probably I should have, I should have done that more. Uh, even if people wouldn't reach out to me, you probably, uh, you, you look at your horizon, time horizon in a fairly limited way. You know, you look at your degree only, you look at your MBA only, you look at your, your early career, but you're not thinking long-term. And it's not that people should be paranoid. And I think that, you know, kids already have too much pressure nowadays. But actually having, having you know, the knowledge to understand what are your career options, what are you good at and what, where you should focus, um, I think that's, you know, that's something that I would have liked to have done more. And uh, maybe, maybe I would have been a VC even younger. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. And we have a very good case of uh, Aris Tevings, uh, also part of a very famous podcast that I strongly recommend, which is the 20 Minute VC. Uh, and also part of Strides uh, with um, Fred Destin, if I'm if I'm not Destin, yeah, as as partners. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, Stefan, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. It's my pleasure. Cheers. And bye bye. To our to our community, uh, thanks for being on that side. Uh, we keep here bringing the best people in the world to help you scale from two to 100 million ARR. See you soon and keep scaling. <laughs>